Welcome to the People Helping People podcast, where we talk about <laughs> culture, social change, and entrepreneurship. I am very excited today to be speaking with my father, Steve Morris, <laughs> who started Asset Strategies Group, or ASG, about 17 years ago. As a quick disclaimer, I do work for my dad. I manage a cloud platform called ASG Edge for retail real estate management. With that said, let's jump right in. Thanks, Dad, for talking to me. And maybe we could kick off with a little bit of what gave you the idea to start your own company. Well, I, I tell you, when I, I had a long corporate career and I worked for a number of turnaround situations, and after my last one, which was at the Limited, I just started, I had a small nest egg and I started looking around for something I could buy and run. I always wanted to run my own business. So I ran a small dot-com in Baltimore for about a year and a half. That didn't pan out. I teamed up with a friend of mine, Tariq Veron, and we looked at a number of businesses. We invested in one that was in bankruptcy that unfortunately stayed in bankruptcy, <laughs> didn't pan out. So I'd been on about a two or two and a half year quest on kind of startup ideas and things I could get involved in and end up running and controlling. And I was pitching an idea to the CFO of Justice, a guy named Kent Kleberger, around a credit card, a proprietary credit card idea. And Kent asked me why I wasn't doing real estate. When I was COO of real estate at Limited Brands, he said, and Justice was part of Limited Brands, they were getting half a million dollars a year in savings through our various initiatives. And frankly, I was a bit burned out after leaving the limited about real estate. And I, I gave him the names of some people I thought would be good for him to contact. And we scheduled a meeting about a month on. And at that meeting, he again, he said, I've talked to all of those people. They're not anywhere near. I have the capabilities you had. Think about this again. He said, I'll give you, would be all in. I'm giving you a contract and doing our audit work, landlord audit work. So at that point, I've always wanted to, I've always been enamored of the idea of having, being in business with a partner. And the, the person who worked for me at the Limited and was a good friend, Paul and I kicked that idea around. And the partnership idea goes back to, you know, Paul Allen, Bill Gates, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, Henry Flager, John D. Rockefeller. There are a lot of really good entrepreneurs that may be more prominent, but they had a, or have a partner that were pretty instrumental in uh, beginning the business. So I kicked this idea around with Paul. And being also cautious, I had a couple of trips scheduled. I, I was in San Francisco. I met with Gap and asked them about if we started this company, what would it look like to them? Would, would it be something they would give us contracts for? And what did they say? And they said, yes, they're all in. They, they used outside auditors. They split the work up. They'd be happy to give us a, a piece of their work. I went to New York and I met with, uh, through a friend of mine, I met with the CFO of Foot Locker and I got the exact same reception. I think there was a big awareness in the industry at that time of the results limited brands had had on auditing landlords, which was, you know, well over a hundred million dollars in, in, uh, recoveries. So they also said they'd give me a contract and then, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch said they'd give us a contract. So we were going down this path of starting the business and then Rich Menino, who, ran the audit practice at Limited, heard about it, 
and uh, said he wanted in. <laughs> so we actually started the company with the three of us, uh, a third, a third, a third. And uh, our concept was doing audits on a portfolio basis and on a flat fee basis. Everyone in the industry were doing audits on a contingency basis, which takes you a long time to which may be lucrative, but it takes you a long time to see any return on investment. Because the companies have to execute. Yeah. Sometimes it takes uh, 12 or 18 months to get a settlement. And if we were going to do this in a big way, we knew we had had to hire three to seven people to, to manage the workload. So we'd be out of pocket on payroll and uh, our own payroll and so forth. So we knew we had to get a flat fee up front and then build the business from there. Got it. So when you started, it sounds like you had a few contracts already in hand to basically jump on the road and start running. Yeah, we had, we had promises of a contract. Our first hire was actually uh, Jen Hilger, who worked for me at the Limited Brands. Paul and I talked to her on a Friday and said, we're thinking of starting this company. Would you be interested in working for us? When I met with her on Monday, I said, have you thought about this over the weekend? And she said, I quit my job this morning. <laughs> <laughs> So we we were very fortunate having a number of people that had worked for us at L Brands who were available and interested and wanted to work for us again. Chris Pachano, Holly Harper, Holly Jenks. So we had a really good media workforce that was pretty experienced and we knew they were going to be pretty good workers. So that was kind of an early startup. And then one of the big conventions in this kind of real estate administration world is the National Retail Tenants Association. And that was coming up, I think, came up a week after we started the company. So we, the three of us, Paul and Rich and I, got tickets and went to NRTA. Rich and Paul had been going to NRTA for seven years. I'd gone sporadically, but we knew a lot of people in the industry. So that was a pretty good launch as well to talk to people and figure out if we could get contracts. Now, that was a scramble. We put together our audit work papers, our business plan, our pricing, our first website. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty amateurish marketing materials looking back, but we got a number of commitments also at NRTA. And then uh, Limited 2 and Abercrombie and Foot Locker and Gap all followed through and gave us some contract work. At that point in time, CBL had which is a large REIT, had acquired a, another large retailer, Jacobs, Jacobs, and they raised the CAM charges and the other prorated charges 50% on the malls they acquired. So retailers were had never really audited CBL in the past. So I think we audited CBL for five different clients the first year, and it was probably 300 different leases. And the settlements were probably in the $50 million range across all of those retailers. We were very fortunate in having Abercrombie as one of our first clients because CBL was very recalcitrant about lending us audit. Developers put up a lot of obstacles to this business. They delay. They want to review lease language. Sometimes they think they have the right to insist you have a CPA on staff, which we did, but we had to had to show that. And fortunately, Abercrombie, at that point in time, CBL was trying to get Abercrombie into some of their malls. And Jeff just stonewalled them and said, I'm not talking to you until you let my audit group in. So he, he was very helpful in getting us 
in the door at CBL and getting our audit scheduled. They were interestingly kept their audit group decentral. I mean, their accounting group decentralized. They had about 50 malls. Every other REIT had centralized and had a shared service group. But the consequence was of that was we had to travel to every one of those 50 malls to collect our audit work papers. It's a lot of travel. So we were all on the road for quite a while, everyone in the company, going in, looking at their back up to all their CAM and uh, property tax charges, scanning everything. We bought everyone portable scanners and coming back and trying to put that into workbooks. Now, at the same time, we had a vision of full-service real estate business practice, which meant we wanted to do real estate strategy, store design and construction, lease administration, audit work, of course, and eventually tenant representation work. So the second thing we did and the second key employee who's now is president who is now president was Kerry Barkley, also worked for me at the limited, and uh, Louis So, who worked for Kerry, and we wanted to get in the real estate strategy or predictive analytics business. And we got a contract, I think about three months after we started, four months after we started to put together a strategy framework for New York and Company, which mm. had been spun off from the limited and where I knew the head of real estate, John DeWolf. So was that just jumping in? Did it take a long time to build that on? You know, I think it's interesting because now we're in five lines of businesses. We're in strategy or predictive analytics. We're in tenant rep. We're in store design and construction. We're in the audit business has really transformed into an outsourced lease administration, rent accounting practice. And each one of those, so we've really started five businesses. And each one of those have their own unique challenges and, and life cycles and good years and bad years. But what's nice about it is we're we're all selling to one industry vertical, so we're all selling to specialty retail. So there's some good economies of that. And when one area is hot, another area might not be as robust in that particular year. For example, in 2008, the store design and construction business kind of almost went away, whereas the strategy business became had a really good year. So it just has varied over the years which of those businesses. And, and we keep looking for things we can do that's selling to that specialty retail industry vertical. you remember what the hardest point was when you were getting started and first growing? Well, the first three years were pretty tough. I think I think we had the three partners and I think it was five to seven employees and we did a million two, a million one, a million three in revenue. So each of the partners was maybe making eighty or ninety thousand dollars, which was way below what we could make if we just took a corporate job. And I think all three of us had our ears open for that. <laughs> if the right opportunity came along, we might say, hey, to our other two partners, I'm out. So that was a bit of a struggle. We believed in what we were doing. We enjoyed working with each other. But just there was that constant question mark, is this a real business or not? That's the scale we wanted to do it at. Now, the next year, the fourth year, we did a million seven. And then the year after that, we did 3.5 million. So it, we just gained momentum. And we went from a position of having to sell ourselves based on our corporate careers to having real credibility as a company mm. and the company just selling itself because we've done great work. We worked with, I think, 15 retailers the first year. A lot of those retailers gave us add-on work. Sterling Jewelers became a, or K Jewelers became a really big client. We did all of their audit work. Charming Shops, which we, we drove through a snowstorm from Columbus <laughs> to 
Philadelphia to meet with charming shops. And on the way back, they called and said they were going to give us their artwork. <laughs> <laughs> and they became a really big client as well. So uh, Justice was a big client over the years. So it was interesting how that doing a good job for clients gets you more work with clients. Mm. Now, one thing I've always been impressed with is, is you seem to have uh, really strong values over over what ASG stands for and represents both to our clients and internally to our employees. Yeah, I think my biggest frustration in my corporate life was building a certain set of values in the people that worked for me. And they had to do with customer service and teamwork and working together as a team and leveraging everyone's talents and getting people in the right roles. And then uh, when whatever happened in those corporate jobs, usually a change in ownership new people coming in at the top and wanting to do things a different way, I saw the things I had built and the values I, I thought were important go away. Mm-hmm. So one of my motivations for starting this company was build a lasting set of values and cultures. And, and we were very clear from the very beginning, A, we wanted to be a, a work-life balance company. We some Most of our early employees had left the limited because they were women and the demands that Limited wanted to put on them in terms of 50, 60 hour work weeks be available on Friday night or Saturday morning. They just wasn't part of their life values. So we thought we could put together a company that respected that work-life balance. And I think we've been successful doing that. Customer first is just always a really good business strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I've always felt, I talked about this in the past, I always admired Honda's pricing strategy. They were always best quality, lowest price. There's not a reason you can't give the best product and do it at at the most valuable price to the customer. So we thought that was the best way to grow the business as well, as opposed to chasing maybe the highest price consulting contract we could get. Like our audit practice, it started out at $2,200 a lease. I think when we Towards the end, we were up to $3,000 a lease, but that represented about a 10% of the savings, whereas most contingency people were charging 25 or 30 percent of savings. And we were obviously getting money up front and flat fee, but it was a you know, the clients really recognized that as a significant value and was responsible for us getting ongoing work with them. So that pricing was always that way. I think those are the key. <laughs> Key things. I, I don't know if I did. I, I you know I really believe working as a team is you're stronger. Yeah. Under people understanding that they they're part of a bigger company and contributing to the team and pitching in wherever they need. That gets harder and harder as the company gets bigger and bigger and more and more kind of product areas. People get a little bit siloed, but we still try and emphasize that. I was going to ask. You know, now ASG is up to about forty employees. What some of the growing pains have been getting up to that and what changes you've seen? Well, we went through two ownership changes. We Paul and I bought Rich Menino out after the third year. And then uh, Paul and after that experience, Paul and I negotiated or set up a buy-sell agreement. I was honestly thinking Paul's about 10 years younger than I am and he would be buying me out, but it, it turned out to be the other way. He decided he wanted to have a career in different field. He got a master's in uh, literature and has been trying to write a book. So he exercised his buy-sell agreement and I bought Paul out. And that was kind of a lengthy process to about a four-year transition. But that's been a major transition. And then thinking about succession planning and uh, trying to groom internal people to take on more responsibility, more leadership training courses to building those things back into the company. 
where we are today, did you ever envision that ASG would grow to where we are today? You know, I, it's interesting. I'm I'm not sure I ever had a, a business plan that we're going to, A, hit X revenue or X number of employees. It's it's all been organic growth, and it's I've become my world's increasing. It was from the beginning, but it's even increasingly more so the front man, the sales, the customer-facing person. So I've been 15 years chasing uh, relationships and customers. I'm a great networker. I'm not maybe the greatest salesperson in the world, but what's worked for us is our credibility and our networking ability. So that's that's just been a constant. And we never knew how far that would take us. So we bootstrapped the company. Nobody gave us a million or $2 million to go hire a, you know, a superstar in XYZ kind of uh, skill set. So it's all internal learning and getting better and better at what we do. We think one of the things we're really smart about, and I think I'm smart about it, and Paul, who founded the company with me, was really smart about was building we call technology-enabled business processes. Mm. So we can deliver things. Part of the value we create is we invest in data and technology and spread that across a number of clients. So that's true in our strategy work. It's true in our lease administration work. It's true in our store design and construction work some of the back-end software and investments we've made in, in managing those processes. So we think that's a, been a smart, clever way. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. It's just a tough, competitive world out there. <laughs> We're not sure we get full credit for that when we, when we try and price our services. Now, you said retail is a, a tough, competitive world. Has it changed a lot in the last 17 years? Oh, my gosh. I love retail. It's just such an exciting industry. It's I think $2 trillion if if you exclude auto sales and gasoline sales, and it's ever-changing. There's one of our CEOs whose company eventually went bankrupt. He's a great customer of ours, and he just always called it a dog-eat-dog world, (laughs) and he relished it. He relished the fight, and it's you've just seen, you know, Walmart was the big disruptor in the 1990s. It it became... uh, multi-hundred billion dollar retailer, which nobody thought was remotely possible a decade before that. The real estate venues have just transformed over the last 15, 20 years from 1,000 or 1,300 shopping centers to 400 power centers to 150 outlet centers and all these value type of locations. You, You see TJ Maxx now, which isn't in our sweet spot of a customer category is the highest valued uh, stock on retail stock on Wall Street, excluding Amazon, if you count Amazon as a retailer. Obviously, you have the Amazon effect. And simultaneously with the Amazon effect, you have e-commerce. It's just sweeping the industry and social media and mobile and, and how customers want to engage brands now. And that's creating clearly a lot of turmoil with retailers who don't quite get it and have a lot of legacy systems and legacy thought process just losing out. But you see these up-and-comers, one of the growth part of our businesses right now are e-commerce companies that are building their brand through social media and being very successful as brick-and-mortar retailers. So Vineyard Vines, we just built a store for Untuck It, Jornel, people in that category. And we're seeing a lot of wholesalers who were traditionally built their brand by being a a shop and shop in Macy's or product line in Macy's or the fashion department store now thinking they have to figure out their own brand, figure out how to go Mm. to market with their own brand because they can't rely on the department stores who are losing market share and generally the malls are losing traffic. 
So we're, we're seeing a lot of people in those categories trying to sort out brick and mortar and how to bring their, and e-commerce and how to bring their brand to market. So that's the growth. But it's a $2 trillion industry and it's growing. <laughs> so there's certainly going to be a lot of movement within that, but we think we're well positioned to help retailers, whether they're mature retailers, rethink their strategy or new retailers who want to get into more brick and mortar kind of retail. I see that in the news a lot that there's so many long established retailers that are struggling and going under and a lot of more quality malls that are just struggling right now. Yeah, the the places people shop are just going to change. And and the smart retailers are anticipating that. I had lunch last week with a friend who, an ex-limited friend, and he's very unhappy with the way he's still got some stock in the limit and he's very unhappy with their lack of foresight on this. And his example was brand Pink. In his opinion, Pink should be in every center where there's a Whole Foods. And instead, they're in a thousand centers and a third of those thousand traditional shopping centers and closed shopping centers are going to close in the next five or six years. And they're just not thinking ahead of where they need to position that brand because they're selling to millennials. Millennials shop in their neighborhoods and shop at Whole Foods, shop at Costco and REI. (laughs) So having your brand uh, up against a Nordstrom maybe isn't the best thing for, for that particular brand given their customer customer focus. So you got to you got to really think strategically about this. Unfortunately, we're in a, a year where a lot of retailers aren't thinking they're we call it deer in the headlights. They're just worried about what's the next chip to fall and they're not proactively thinking about how to reposition their brand. We think we can help them. So what's been your maybe greatest takeaway from building up a company? Well, the people, you know, I love building a, a culture and a, and a group of people. And I'm, you know, I have a high loyalty to the people that work for us. We've, I think we're, we're a high demand employer in terms of what we expect back, but seeing people successful in the company, we've had people get promoted. And even though we're a small company, people promote and get better, better jobs within the company. We took someone out of uh, an opening the mail job and now he's a, a developer, yeah. <laughs> experienced developer working for you. And that's really fun, uh-huh. being able to develop and, and have opportunities for people. Looking at the, the world in, in general, like uh, what would an ideal world look like to you? Oh, boy, that's uh, <laughs> given my... <laughs> My political leanings are, are on the left side of the spectrum, and I champion diversity and just want to see the world go more in that direction. I, I think economically, we've tilted too far to this unequal distribution of income, and we continue to see politicians favoring capital over demand. So they'll, they'll give a tax cut to capital spending. They're anti-union. What we really need is higher minimum wages, higher wages in general, and more demand generated in this economy. You give Bill Gates another $10 million, it's just going to go into whatever trust fund he's got. Not to pick on Bill Gates, but it doesn't generate. It's not. There's no multiplier effect. It's mm. not generating spending you can't go around and shop at all the malls. You can only go out to dinner five nights a week or seven <laughs> nights a week. It's not going to change his spending and it's not going to trickle down any place. So I would think we'd have more, you know, a smarter economic platform would champion spending. I saw in Washington State they raised the minimum wage and they initially thought it was going to have a negative impact on businesses being able to afford uh, employees and they found that actually increased spending a lot because now people have more money to go out and spend and it was a big boost to their economy. 
Now that I mean that just seems so obvious to me, but people fight it on their scare tack is McDonald's won't be able to hire seven dollar an hour people and they'll automate the McDonald's will lose will have this high unemployment if you raise minimum wage, which just seems like a self interest type of argument for yeah. people that want to make ever more and more profits as opposed to sharing it. So you, you see in the countries in Europe that have much more even wealth distribution are certainly happier countries <laughs> than this country. Certainly a very dynamic country. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure like going in and, and hearing more about your story of how you got started. <laughs> and uh, well, thank you that's been it's i never imagined uh a i'd live in columbus for 20 years or i'd have a business 2017 15 years on 15 yeah. year anniversary this year so that's been extremely exciting cool. <laughs> i feel like i've really got a legacy to leave behind really appreciate it well thank you very much you're welcome thank you, thank you.